Welcome to Church 213. We're so glad you're listening to our sermon series on 1 Peter titled A Cautious Crossing. The book of 1 Peter was an important letter to first century believers, encouraging them on how to carefully influence and impact their culture. This message is still relevant today as we Christians carefully make the cautious crossing toward heaven. Join us on our journey through this fantastic book. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump right in. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're not going to stand quite yet, okay? I know you guys are creatures of habit. That's how we roll. We're going to get there in just a minute. But if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 1. So don't throw that up there quite yet. Those guys are sitting on green. I love it. I love it. Here's the deal. We've been talking the last nine weeks, covering 91 verses. My goal is to be a a relative expositor, to unpack the Word of God and let it work. And we've been doing that, walking through a series called A Cautious Crossing. A Cautious Crossing. Because as a cautious crossing, we are professing Christ as Christ followers in a non-Christian culture. In the book of 1 Peter has been speaking life and and hope and focus to these five pockets of believers around the Mediterranean Sea. And what Peter's been telling them is, hey, stay on that life-giving, narrow path, because the opportunity to live out faith is lush. That's why it applies to us today. The opportunity that we have in America, Rome, America, to share our faith is lush, isn't it? And so he's been giving us some very specific things. We've, we've learned, among other things, how to cautiously cross with life with purpose, just as a way of review, by having our identity defined by Christ. We won. Our security found in Christ. Our gospel impact towards civil authority. The importance of the order of the home for gospel impact. The importance of harmony inside this place, the bride of Christ. Our witness in the community. And now Peter is saying, oh, and one final thing before you go. That's the title of the message. Oh, and one final thing before you go. In the South... Uh, part of Southern hospitality is the lingering goodbye. Are y'all with me? The lingering goodbye. When you have guests at the house and it's time to leave, you know, you shake their hand, you know, you give them a hug and you thank them for coming. And this happens inside the house, but that's not the real goodbye. Then you walk out to the door. Then you walk out onto the porch and you stand a while talking about leaving. But that's not the final goodbye. Then you follow them out in the yard. And you talk about how important it was to have them in the house and how much it meant to have them over. But that's not the final goodbye, is it? Then you follow them to the car. But that's not the final goodbye. 
Then they get in and they start to pull off and you talk to them out the window. Come on, y'all with me? But that's not the final goodbye, is it? The only really final goodbye is when you wave and you say these final words. Y'all be careful and watch for deer. When you say those words, then they can go home. Y'all be careful. Say it with me. And watch for deer. See, it's the, it's the final act of warning that is possibly lurking in the darkness and unseen places that communicates commitment and love. Why? Because if you really appreciated my visit, you'd want to erase any alarm to get me home safe. Are y'all with me? If you really cherish me, you're going to do all you can to alert me to what I might not be privy to. And nothing says I care deeply about you than making you aware of what can and will bring harm and destruction to you. Of all the topics that, 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 that Peter could have dipped his pen in the inkwell for the last time to write, it's a warning against the greatest threat in the cautious crossing, and it is our greatest adversary, the devil. And I understand that anytime you preach about the devil, according to the authority of God's word, oh, death, where's your sting? It's under the authority of the king. We just sang about that. It answers to the king. And anytime you step into that, we better be ready for some serious spiritual pushback. And we felt it this week. And I'm telling you, the enemy is on alert. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would let God work in a prepared heart so that the enemy doesn't snatch away what he wants to do in us this morning. Of all the things Peter could have done, of all the things Peter could have written at the last time he dipped his, his pen in the inkwell to these believers, it's just this. Oh, and one final thing before you go. Let's, let's stand together. With that in mind, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're 91 verses in. Nine weeks. Oh, and one final thing before you go. First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way to verse 11. I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed, for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you.
to God be the glory. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. You be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that that same kind of suffering are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered. How long? A little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. You guys can be seated. Man, Peter's wrapping this thing up. He's wrapping it up. What Peter's, what Peter's doing here in chapter 5 is he's laying out for the church and, and he's laying out for its leaders how to stay out of the reach of Satan. And that's comforting to me. Knowing that it's possible not to be easy pickings for the enemy. Amen. That's comforting to me that he may reach for me, but he can't get to me. You know, when we tell somebody leaving the house, watch out for deer, we know what those are because we've experienced them. That like we, we know it's reality. But that's not really the case for Satan. We, we, I don't need to clarify what that means. Hey, y'all, y'all be careful, watch for deer. So let me explain to you what a deer is. Now we know. But that's not necessarily the case for, for Satan because today the idea of the devil has been so watered down and distorted and underestimated that he's become a fictional and, and sometimes a comical character. This is not a joke. The theology of Satan and the theology of demons today is not near as solid as it was in the first century. It's gotten watered down. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We have a foe. We have a foe. And Hey, I don't have to tell you, but you know, look around. People are being rocked to sleep to his reality, and Lucifer is the one rocking the cradle. He loves nothing more than for people to believe that he's a joke. I'm telling you, he is not a joke. He's not a joke. So we have to know, we have to know who we need to be on guard against. So we're going to work through a little bit of theology, some, some of demon theologies, things you need to know as believers in, in 2023, just as believers knew their theology in first century, just as Peter is encouraging them, I'm encouraging you. So let's kind of work through this a little bit, okay? Listen, the, the, the enemy wants to blind you in this moment. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, to the light of the gospel of Christ that is made in the image, that we are made in his image. So he wants to, don't let him rob you this morning. He's a punk and I hate him, Okay? But he is working in this moment to rob you of these words. So I beg you, just have hearts to understand and ears to listen. First thing to know is this, our adversary is an actual person. He's an actual person. 
Many people believe that, that when the Bible talks about Satan, that it's just, um, it's just symbolism, like that, that Satan is just a, the placeholder for evil, that it's, that it's just a symbol. But every writer in the New Testament affirmed his reality and his activity. In 25 of the 29 passages in the Gospels that speak of Satan, guess who's talking about Satan in 25 of those 29 passages? The Lord Jesus himself. Peter didn't think Satan was a symbol. Neither did first century Christians. They were dead serious about the one who Jesus himself said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He saw it. Jesus knows he is very real. This is no unordinary individual that we are dealing with. 52 times Satan is given that personal name, Satan. The Hebrew word for, uh, for, for Satan means to oppose. Symbols don't oppose. 35 times the Bible calls him the devil. Devil is a Greek word, diabolos, which means slanderer. Symbols don't slander. In Genesis 3, Satan first appears to mankind as a serpent, indicating deceit and craftiness. Symbols aren't deceitful and crafty. Are y'all with me? In Revelation, he's depicted as the great red dragon to show his fierce nature. If you walk in here with a pair of tennis shoes with a symbol on the side, I'm not afraid that symbol is going to attack me. It's a symbol. The enemy is not a symbol for evil. He's a real person. Satan has personality. He has intelligence. He has emotions of anger and desire. He shows that he has a will. A will. All those things are evidence of personhood. Let's roll some through, through some scriptures to make that point to you. First one is this. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He has personality and intelligence, cunningness. Luke 22.31 makes the point of anger and desire. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He has emotion and will. Isaiah 14 says this, Shining morning star, how have you fallen from the heavens? You destroy, destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. Does that sound like a symbol as a person? I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest part of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Does that sound like a symbol? No, no. 2 Timothy 2.26. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Understand this, church, Satan is real. And the fact that Satan is real should make us cross this life far more cautiously. Knowing that there's a personal foe lurking for us personally. Somebody's after us. I mean, if our guests pull out of the driveway and we wave and we're like, hey, be careful for the unicorns. 
Y'all watch that tooth fairy. She flies real low at night. You're not going to be going down the road looking for a unicorn or looking for a tooth fairy. But if I said, hey, when you get home, watch for that hungry grizzly bear that we heard is in the area. You're going to get out and you're going to creep along like Elmer Fudd. Y'all with me? Why? Because you understand the reality of things. Our habits of our lives should be affected by the reality of Satan. He's a very clear and present danger. And so listen, make no mistake that Satan is referred to as a person in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus himself affirms Satan is real. Satan is an expert at stealing, catch this, stealing away God's goodness from God's creation and therefore leaving vacuum for evil to fill. You can't have evil without good. God is good. And in the vacuum of goodness, there flows evil. And so he's absolutely a real person. Our adversary is absolutely still a created spiritual being. This is important. Okay? Doctrine is our bedrock. Okay? This is, this is important theology for us to understand. Our, our adversary is a created spiritual being. Paul says it like this, we don't fight against or a war or struggle against something that's fleshly. You can't, you can't necessarily see it. We are, we are, this isn't the only dimension of our reality. We're trapped in here, time and space. Okay, the laws of physics, the first and second and third law, thermodynamics, all those things. It controls our reality. But there is something that's outside of our dimension of reality. And Paul talks about that. Ephesians 6 kind of talks about it. It says this. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. It's not a symbol. Symbols don't scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and what, church? Blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. It's that realm that we can't see. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. See, if we're not operating with spiritual weapons, we're not going to be able to win the spiritual opposition that's coming against us. Satan is a created spiritual being. He belongs to the order of angels called the cherubim. What are cherubim? Well, they're, listen to this. The cherubim are the personal attendants of the throne of God. Wow. We have some ushers. We have an usher team, and they greet, and they usher you into this room. They put a sermon guide in your hand, and they smile real big, unless they should be smiling. If not, let me know, and I'll have a talk with them. Say, I'm glad you're here. Imagine the cherubim welcoming the worship of God. Guarding the holiness of God. That was the role of the created cherubim. They led in worship. And if you do a word study and you look at a creation week timeline, what you'll see is that indicates that those angels were created on creation week sometime between day three. It says that Lucifer was the highest created of the cherubim, and he guarded the worship and the holiness of God. Wow. 
What, what power? He is not some fictional, comical character running around. <laughs> we're talking about, we're talking about the, the cherubim of all cherubims guarding, ushering in the worship of the Lord. He has incredible influence, which is why he's called the God of this world. But what you need to know is he is created. And that's important for believers because it tells me that he's not equal to God. To God be the glory. Which also means this. He is under the authority and the thumb of the creator. And he answers to the king. But he still has his being under his, under his thumb who alone has those attributes that are for God alone. And so as a created cherubim, in order to express worship, he was given free will. Free will creates honest, <coughs> authentic worship. <coughs> we have to have free will. It's part of our nature. It's part of what makes us human. It's part of what opens us up to the ability to worship in spirit and in truth. And so the created beings also had that opportunity. But here's what happened in Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Ezekiel is prophesying, looking back to the fall of Satan. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper, lapis. What in the world is that word? Turquoise and emerald. If you can't afford it, if you can't spell it, you can't afford it. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. He's describing something that was incredibly valuable and precious. That's the idea. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub. For I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. And through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub. From among the fiery stones, your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. You profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities. And in your dishonest trade, so I made fire come from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become an object of horror and will never exist again. What this is explaining to us is the judgment that God placed on a free will that has gone rogue. And he will never be given the splendor again. But that doesn't mean that he lost his power and his influence. He was cast to what he had in heaven. He was cast to, to um, give exclusive rights to that on earth. And so he is still trying to rob the glory of God. Praise God, though, that that, that that type of power still has to be accountable to his creator. 
And so without a doubt, he's a person. Without a doubt, he's a created spiritual being. And without a doubt, our adversary is on a war path. He's on a war path. He's real and he's ruthless. A real spiritual person at war over the glory of God. He's a ferocious in his attacks against God's sheep because we have something that he will never have. That's God's grace. So he blinds people to that truth. He's a glory stealer. What is his main goal? His main goal is to prevent people from hearing the good news about Jesus. The life giver. The way, the truth, and the life. And so Satan lies. He denies. He misrepresents the truth. The scripture says he has the world lying in his lap. Do we not see that? And the fruit of his influence are seen in every crevice of our culture. See, one of the activities of Satan is to be an accuser, the Bible says, the accuser of the brethren. The brothers and sisters, those that are blood-bought, redeemed. What does that mean? That means he accuses us of the sins that we've committed before the Lord day and night. He doesn't have the attribute of God, which means he's not, he's not all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. But he takes information at where he is, but he is able to go from this dimension to the next. I know it's hard to wrap your minds around, okay? But what he does is he looks and takes the sins that we commit, and he takes them into the presence of God, and he accuses us day and night. They're sinners. You can't love them. They're sinners. You can't love them. Blood of Jesus doesn't really cover it. And day and night, church, the Bible says the Lord defends you and me. Amen. He defends us in our salvation through our Lord Jesus as our advocate on the sole basis that all of our sins have been paid by his death. So when the enemy, the accuser, goes before the heavenly father and says, you can't commit them, he's like, look at Jesus. And so there's this cosmic exchange between they can't be forgiven and God says they are forgiven. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Praise God, we have an advocate that is battling in the courtroom of heaven with the gavel of eternity on my case and on behalf of your case, we have been set free. Where, death, where is your sting? It's under the authority of the king. And John flushes this out, 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Counselor, the floor is yours. Innocent. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. I've asked myself these questions. If the resurrected body would fully complete to show us that when we are resurrected, we too may be made whole. Why did God not heal the nail Scars in the hand of Jesus in a perfect restored body. I think because he shows the devil those nail scars as the advocate. He's standing there. So when there's a great accusation in the courtroom of heaven, Jesus steps forward and just holds out his hands. Y'all, 
Satan is on the warpath and a cautious crossing. The Bible describes him as, as a god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Air means the cosmos. Cosmos just means those heavenly places. This is, this is the real place, but, but it's, it's invisible to us, to, to, to something the human eye can't see. But we know that even though we can't see it, we know that the effects are real. For example, we can't see gravity, but we know that it's real. Y'all with me? You can't see love, but you know its effects. You can't see pain of suffering, but we know it's real. And so we can't use the argument spiritually and say, just because I can't see the heavenly realms, they must not exist because we can look around and we see the fruits of someone working in the cosmos. You guys write this down. It's, it's right there. We are, we are extremely vulnerable to Satan and suffering because he leverages and steals God's glory. That's the theme of 1 Peter. It's just simply suffering. See, don't you believe for a second that, that, that the glory that God receives when we live out a faith under fire isn't resented by the Prince of Peace. He resents us when we're able to, to, to live out for the glory of God. And he wants to steal God's praise from my life and he wants to steal God's praise from your life. And he seeks that. And what does he seek? He, he seeks, he seeks the, the fact that he wants us to allow him to influence our hearts and our mind and not the truth of the living Savior, the Word of God, God himself. He, he, Satan wants to rob us of that. And so those three things kind of make it clear. We understand now who our enemy is, but in, but in, verse, in verse 8 it says that he's seeking, he's, he's, ro he's roaming around. So the question that I ask myself working through this is, what is he seeking? Well, he's seeking someone to devour. Well, why, how does he know if there's someone he can devour? This is just a way to kind of work through a text. Who is he seeking? Someone to devour. Well, how do I know if I'm, I'm something that he can devour? I don't think for a minute that he's blindly roaming around. It's not just an accidental thing. He's too intentional for that. He's too crafty for that. He's intentionally waiting. But what is he looking for? What Peter is doing is he's putting that in that context of chapter Five. What Peter is doing right here is he's telling them, hey, what he's looking for is found in suffering. And so what he's doing is he's telling these believers and the leaders, how, how can you face suffering without being vulnerable to Satan? All right, we're switching gears. We're going to second. We know that our adversary is personal, created spiritually, is on the warpath. We also know that he wants to devour me and you. So how can we live so that we might not be easy pickings for someone that is ruthlessly crafty and deceitful? Let's, let's read 1 through 4. I exhort the elders among you as fellow, as fellow elders and witnesses to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you. 
Not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's this unguarded suffering from church leaders gives Satan access. This is to me here. This is to the pastoral staff. Peter's hitting me right between the eyes here. And see, these pocket of believers were under such suffering by the Roman world that they needed. Paul, Peter, Peter knows that these suffering Christians needed authentic, strong, pastoral leadership. They were sheep. They were going to need a shepherd. And Peter is letting them know that, hey, I've walked where you've walked. I am. A, I am. He's writing to the shepherds. He's like, you can trust what I'm about to say because I have also a fellow, a fellow elder under suffering as a witness of Christ Jesus. He's given himself some street cred. He has credibility to speak to the pastors because he was one. He was one who was rejected, who cursed and who denied that he ever knew Jesus. But listen, what is he doing now? He, he writes as a witness, standing forgiven, standing restored, who bask in the warmth of God's grace. And so he uses the word elder. This is, to me, the, the word elder is the word presbyterian. Presbyterios. Presbyterios. It means this. It just simply means responsible to shepherd the flock. Presbyterian. The presbyty. The, the, the leadership of the ministry. Easy for me to say. To tend the sheep as an overseer. An elder. First Timothy swings pretty hard at the elder says this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. The idea there is, is not talking about divorce. It's talking about being committed to the wife that God had given you. One, here, focused mind to the ministry of the work with the lady that God has brought by your side. Self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. This ain't a perfect home, okay? There's no perfect home. This is the idea of, hey, if you can't lead a home, how are you going to lead a church family? If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. What this is saying is it makes it clear that I have a responsibility to teach and to encourage, and to comfort, and to rebuke according to the Word of God. Welcome to church. 
But what Peter's saying is you have to be very cautious in this role. What Peter's saying is, elders, before you can lead well through suffering, you make sure that your heart is right as a shepherd. This is a suffering world and your people are going to need you, but you better make sure you have your heart in order. Don't, don't shepherd in the suffering because you feel guilty or obligated for the ministry as a way to, as a way to, to, just to, to tell God thank you for the blood applied. That's he's saying. You can't enter into the ministry out of some guilt or obligation. The reality is we'll never pay the Lord back. That's why it's amazing grace. It's eternally undeserved. Amen? So you don't somehow say, I think I'm going to go into the ministry because what God has done for me. We should all serve Him. No matter what, what, what is on the, the, the bottom line of our, of our W-2 or our W-4 or our 1099 or what it is, every day we are to serve the Lord and where He has given us to bloom, where we're planted. And Peter is saying ministry should not be an unwanted burden or attempt to prove anything to anyone. Check your heart is what he's saying. Be a pastor because God won't let you do anything else. Listen, September of 99, I walked down the front of the Sunday night service to a little small Baptist church, and I met the pastor there, and I simply surrendered the doors of my vocational life to the Lord's work. And it was very simple. I just, I just gave God my yes. Whatever that looked like, in whatever season God put me in, I just said, Lord, I'll endure it for your glory and I'll pour myself into it at all costs. Whatever door you open, by faith, I will step in and I'll give it everything I've got. Now I'm here. Good grief. Is it what I wanted? Not really. Are there days where it's too much to bear? Yes. Would I encourage people to do it? Probably not. But will the Lord let me go? No. Because you have to be theologians, preachers, teachers, trainers, vision casters, fundraisers, spiritual mentors, administrators. You have to be staff supervisors and headhunters. You have to be counselors, conflict mediators. You got to be promoters and plumbers. You have to be strategic developers and logistic engineers. You have to, to have to be community organizers and social media experts. You have to be event coordinators, financial managers, budget developers, activity coordinators. You have to be a branding consultant, prayer mobilizers, brotherhood breakfast cooks, VBS promoters, student camp bus drivers, marriage coaches, disciple makers, pastors to pastors, evangelists, a good shot, husband. Daddy, son, brother, and friend, and never let on that you're having a bad day. But God won't let me go. God won't let me go. Peter's saying, elders, you better be willing to serve with enthusiasm, with energy and excitement, not out of selfish greed or selfish gain or insensitivity. See, what I want you to know is this. The sheep should never be a stepping stone for the shepherd. I'm not going to overlook you to greener pastures. I want to take us to greener pastures together for the glory of God. Okay? 
And may I never be accused of using any of you guys for my own gain. Is it a position of authority? Yes. It's given to me by God to lead, not to drive with a heavy hand by force. That's what lording over means here. It just means forcefully. And here's what I hear me. When, when you profess Christ and you follow him in baptism as evidence of that invisible position with Jesus, Romans 10, and you tell me that he's led you to serve him through this ministry, I give you this promise that I will shepherd you to the best of my ability to the extent that you let me shepherd you. And I will give my best to, serve, to, to humbly serve you even unto death. That's my commitment. Because we're not going to be able to go through a life of suffering without that type of authentic leadership. That's the context. And Peter wanted these leaders to know that if these elders modeled this kind of responsible shepherding and suffering, that they would offer their own resistance. Hey, I'm under the gun just like you. A sign of a good leader is he has a couple of arrows in the back. Amen. And I'm willing to take an arrow for you guys based on the truth of God's word. And if we offer ourselves of our own resistance to the assault of Satan and motivate the congregation to do the same, they will. And together we can move in a cautious crossing for the glory of God. So that's all about the shepherd. Okay. But then Peter makes an exchange and he brings you guys into it. The sheep. Y'all write this down. How do we not be easy pickings for Satan? That happens if there's unguarded suffering from sheep. That gives Satan access. Are y'all with me? Unguarded suffering from sheep gives Satan access. Unguarded suffering from the sheep. Look at verse 5. In the same way you, who are younger, be subject to the elders. But all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again in verse 6, he hits it again. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. You. And then verse 8 sits right in that context like a glove. So be sober minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you'd suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Hey, you make no mistake, Satan's going to ravage and pillage the glory from my life and from your life. And he does it through suffering. And what he's saying is, Peter's saying, we open ourselves to attack through suffering, through the arrogance of self. All right, so here's the connection, okay? 
Suffering and the arrogance of self. They go hand in hand. And this makes so much sense to me because Satan is never closer to devouring someone when they are focused on themselves because we're no more like Satan than when we're prideful. And when we suffer, we have to guard ourselves in the suffering because if we're not careful, pride will work itself in the suffering when we try to control that situation in the suffering ourselves. That opens the door for the devil to have access to us. It's in pride. What is pride? It's the celebration of self-expression. Y'all hang with me. It's the celebration of self-expression. What was Satan cast out of heaven for? Celebration of self-expression. Why is self-expression? If you, if you have watched the news any recently, you understand that self-expression is bright and flamboyant. Y'all with me? It's, it's right in front of, the scripture is alive right in front of us. It's self-worship. Satan wanted to be in charge of himself doing what he wanted despite who God was. It was prideful. If we look upon the political landscape of today, the worship of self is higher than it's ever been. But what's been the result? Chaos. Death. Y'all, right? Confusion. Greed. All this mysterious stuff that we look around and like, this makes no sense. How is this catching traction? How is this getting attention? It makes no sense to the rational and truthful person. You know why it makes no sense? Because we're looking through the biblical lens of truth. But what's happened is the majority of our nation, Romerica, has been given to the prince of the power of the air. And he, we have given him an open door to walk right in and feast. God have mercy on us. In our pride, in our self-expression, lifting ourselves up out from under the authority of God. Look at verse 8. Context is prideful, arrogance, and suffering. Verse 6 says, So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Self-expression. The Lord has has a plan for that. So when you're suffering, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Satan is looking for someone to devour. So he's not just moving around hoping he stumbles on somebody. He's brilliant. And he's crafty. And he knows our patterns. He knows our sinful weaknesses. He knows our strongholds better than we know our strongholds. And listen to this. He can wait us out. He and the principalities can wait us out. And so what, according to the text, what exactly is he looking for here? What, I ask myself this question. What, what tells him this person is on the menu for destruction? What What takes him from roaming to feasting? And Peter says, pride and suffering. Verse 6 and 7, he says, the mighty hand of God. 
I'm going to tie it up for you. This is it. In our suffering, we are to give our circumstances entirely to the Lord Jesus, casting them upon him because he cares for us. That means humble ourselves in the suffering. Make less of me and more of him. Resist him in the suffering. There's a saying, why pray about it when you can worry about it? That may be the motto of some of y'all. What that tells me is, is that what happens when you suffer? You worry. Right? You look around, you're like, what can I do to control this situation? This is uncomfortable to me. This is fearful to me. I worry about this. It's in this context of worry that we become prideful. We're not careful in our suffering. We will allow the suffering to cause us to worry, and we will cause the worry to cause us to try to take the wheel, and that's when pride rises up, and that's when we become on the menu of the enemy. Are y'all with me? That's the context. When we worry, we're vulnerable. And the text says, submit yourselves to the mighty hand of God. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Do y'all really believe that? Then live like it. Cast your cares on Him. Because when we worry, we're vulnerable. You may say things like, I know what God says, but I'm I'm just worried that. And you fill in that blank. I know what God's Word says. I know what the truth is. I just worry that whatever, whatever is in that blank gets Satan's attention. Because it's pride. And pride is like blood in the water. Because when we elevate ourselves over the Savior in any way, we have given our worship over to ourselves, which by default means to Satan because he is the ultimate self-worshipper. The worship of self. And so how in the world do I and this pastoral staff and this church, how do we stand strong against Satan and the suffering? Humble ourselves. We are to be leadable. I coached baseball for a long time. And there were some kids that could really play, but they weren't coachable. And they could, I could only take them so far. Parents would come to me and say, why, why isn't my son getting playing time? So he's not coachable. Like, I can't, I can't teach him anything. I helped Coach Say's uh, softball team um, as an assistant this spring, and I walked up to one of the little girls on her team, and I was coaching her about how to think ahead in, in some theory. Hey, here's what we're going to do with the ball. If it comes to you, there's a runner here. And she's looking at me, and then I realized this. She didn't think I can teach her anything. And so I knelt down. I said, hey, listen, um, I know that I'm talking to, the, to you, but it seems like you're just not hearing me. And she just shook her head. I said, do you think I can teach you something? She said, no. All right. We won one game. It wasn't all that. wasn't her fault. Mostly. But you see... When we face suffering and we go through suffering, 
And we look at the Lord and say, I don't think you can teach me anything here. I'm not going hum, to humble myself under this mighty hand that you've put over me. The devil is like, yep, I got you. Humility is to be aware of personal strengths and thank God for them. Y'all write this down. Humility is also to be aware of personal weaknesses and depend on God and godly leadership to help us guard the door of suffering. Y'all, one of the beautiful parts of a church family is together we guard the door of suffering. Y'all with me? Man, how, how important is it when we struggle to, to know that we've got someone that's going to speak truth into our life, not based on what we feel, but based on what we know is true, and guard that door of suffering because the enemy is knocking at it. He's knocking at it. Proverbs 3 says this. He mocks those who mock, but he gives grace to the humble. The wise will inherit honor, but he upholds, but he holds up fools to dishonor. This word is chocked full of how to be humble before the mighty hand of God. And here's the point that Peter's making. Y'all listen, almost done. When suffering and hard times hit, it's in our nature to try to grab the reins and, and, and do lives on our own terms, to do what we want to do. It's, it's in our natural depravity in our nature. We all have a natural tendency to grab the wheel, right? Anytime life looks different than we want it to. What Peter's saying is, Satan is seeking prideful people to influence to employ and to deploy. Watch out in the suffering. Guard the door, pastor, of your people in suffering. Guard the door, people, for your pastor in suffering. Guard the door, church, family, in suffering. Have the spirit of cooperation with those who God has placed over you to guard the door of suffering instead of being critical trying to sabotage pastoral leadership. I can say from 17 years experience, the times of suffering in valleys, listen to me. I wish the room was full times 10 to hear this. The times of suffering in valleys is typically when someone will find a way to be upset with a pastor so they feel justified in being unchurched because being here puts them under too much conviction. And so what do they do? They disappear in the darkness and they become an easy target for a roaming and seeking adversary. It breaks my heart. The devil is trying to take out the shepherd and he's trying to take out the flock in suffering. Don't help him, okay? Instead, y'all, fight the devil with me. Fight the devil for me. Amen. And for your brothers and sisters, rallying together to resist him in the suffering. And so as we wrap up this book next week, you know that we're coming to the end of this letter. And I can imagine the, I can imagine the believers in Bithynia 
in Pontus and Galatia and Asia and Cappadocia reading this letter and holding their breath as they scan the last few sentences before the paper goes blank. Hey, there's something else after 1 Peter for us. We have the whole canon. But for them, the letter was coming to an end. You're with me? There was no 2 Peter. 1 and 2 John, Revelation. This was it. And put yourself there with them. You've received a letter from someone that you love and respect. Talking about Peter, an eyewitness to Christ's time on earth. And his words were very significant to these people that were suffering for being little Christ. And they know that this is where Peter dips his pen in the inkwell for the last time. So these words carry significance for the cautious crossing then and for the cautious crossing today. Peter's saying, Pastor and church, guard the door in suffering as you watch out. Because the enemy is licking his chops. and You are in his crosshairs. So don't be prideful in it. Lay your lives at his feet in the highs and the lows.